Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 950. We are here early for the Thanksgiving holiday to talk about ballots, both old and new. First up, David Lorla is joined by Alex Spear of the Boston Globe and C. Trent Rosecrans of The Athletic to talk about their respective Cy Young ballots. Last week, Alex wrote a piece called What Voting for the Cy Young Award Taught Me About Modern Pitching Analytics, and this has sparked many conversations about ERA, FIP, and our voting process. The trio get into how challenging it was to rank the best of the best this year, and how the experience has indeed affected how they might evaluate performances going forward. Fielding independent pitching doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me, since only about one-third of all plate appearances end without a ball in play. In the baseball reference adjustment of changing uh, changing a pitcher's value based on his team's defense rather than the defense that was played behind him seems a bit clumsy. So I'm looking elsewhere, I think, in terms of evaluating pitcher performances as they've occurred. After that, Jay Jaffe welcomes Adam Dorowski, head of user experience at Sports Reference, to talk about the latest Hall of Fame ballots. Jay joined Adam on his own podcast back in August to discuss potential candidates for the golden days and early baseball ballots, and now that those have been announced, it is time to dive back into the individual cases of many deserving players who have yet to be enshrined. Jay and Adam talk about the many factors and complex contexts to be considered when looking at some of these historical figures, including integration and character complications, as well as things like if they are still with us today. Yeah, I, it's one of those things where I've I've got two lists. One is like who I think are the best candidates on merit, and then who mm-hmm. I would strategically vote for because we have three living candidates, and I think that needs to be considered because also because of the track record of this era committee in particular of putting people in after they pass away. I think Alan and Minioso could join that group as well. But before we get to these conversations, I must offer my weekly reminder to check out the Fangraphs.com shop. We have great merch for holiday gift-giving, and of course our ad-free memberships. Truly the best way to browse a site at blazing fast speeds, as well as support the site, helping us keep doing everything we do. Thank you for all your help. Enjoy the show. Hey baseball fans, this is David Lorla. My guests are Alex Spear of the Boston Globe and C. Trent Rosecrans of The Athletic more specifically the Athletic Cincinnati. Gents, thanks for coming on to Fangrass Audio. Happy to be here, Dave. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Again. I mean, have I been on this one? I think you've been everywhere, Trent. Are there there are <laughs> pla- there few places exist that you have not gone. Is that because I'm old? I feel old. You said that we did not. Yeah. You're simply in demand. Always in demand, Trent. Sure. We'll take that. Yeah. No, I think demand is very very accurate, as it is with Alex. And with no further ado, we are talking on Monday of Thanksgiving week, which means that award season is now in the rear view. You both had Cy Young award ballots. So let's start with that. Alex, a few days ago, you wrote a fantastic article titled What Voting for the Cy Young Award Taught Me About Modern Pitching Analytics, FIP and WAR playing primarily in your process. So give a quick uh, snapshot of what you wrote. Say the, the the Cliff's Notes version. Sure. The ultimate Cliff's Notes version is that in asking around, asking a lot of people about what matters when evaluating pitcher performance, and specifically what matters about evaluating pitcher performance that has occurred, right, as opposed to looking forward and projecting what someone might do, I think I'm done with FIP, and I think I'm done with WAR, as offered by both Fangraphs and Baseball Reference. I think that we live in an era where we know what happens with every batted ball, right? Like we have uh, more detailed information than, and so eliminating batted ball data 
as we do with fielding independent pitching, doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me since only about one third of all plate appearances end without a ball in play. In the baseball reference adjustment of changing uh, changing a pitcher's value based on his team's defense rather than the defense that was played behind him seems a bit clumsy. So I'm looking elsewhere, I think, in terms of evaluating pitcher performances as they've occurred. So, so ERA? I like ERA. I like expected ERA through StatCast. I like uh, I like defensive. I, I like uh, I like deserved run average from baseball perspectives. I don't. I do not have enough mathematical grounding to know to know about those. You know how well those systems calculate what they are trying to calculate. But I like the idea of how of what they're trying to calculate. So uh, in the case of ERA, you know, tells us a very basic thing about what's happened, right? Or runs allowed per nine. That's also cool. And expected ERA tells us. You know what happened in terms of the quality of contact that uh, an opposing that a pitcher allowed, and and defensive uh, de- deserved run average takes that into further contextual consideration by evaluating the quality of opponents and and things like catcher role in that and defensive role. So I think that I think that that's where I'm kind of heading. So Corbin Burns should have won the Cy Young. So the other part of it beyond ERA, XERA, DRA is innings, 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 uh, which every person who I talked to, everyone inside the game who I oh, yes. talked to this year started with innings as the like as the kind of first top level criteria that they were interested in. And I think that like we the idea of a third time through the order or a fourth time through the order like there's such a massive gap in terms of in terms of what you're asking a pitcher to do in terms of the artistry of pitching what a pitcher has to have in terms of their pitch mix that's so different if you're facing a guy in extra time so i do not i didn't answer this question for myself regarding burns but i would have been awfully i would have had a real difficult time valuing what burns did in a super dominant in super dominant fashion in what he was asked to do over wheeler but that doesn't, I don't know where I would have fallen on that. Yeah. And, and like, I, I'm going to say like, you know, and, and Alex, I mean, you know this as well as I do. When you do these ballots, there's a lot of things I always hear about people like, oh, you're being contrary. It's like, I don't know how anybody else is voting when I vote. <laughs> yeah. Like, like that is just not a thing I know. It's not part of it. Yeah. I don't know. Like, it's not a group think thing because I don't know what the group thinks. Yeah, I'm with you. I bypassed conversation with other writers, uh, particularly writers who would who potentially had a vote. I don't do that because I kind of welcome and like to hear things, but it doesn't push me either way. Um, I'm always big on that, honestly. Mm. Uh, but the other part is, you know, it's it's funny because of just the nature of these things that you have to vote one two. Mm-hmm. Everybody assumes. The difference between one and two is the same as two and three or three and four. Uh, you know, it's the old Ricky Bobby, if you ain't first, you're last thing. <laughs> but like, you know, like sometimes it's it's different. Like a lot of these times when I do it, I have this weird visualization and I almost have like groups. And I started with a group of three at the top and then another group of like three or four. And it kind of basically like in my mind when i go through everything and i talk to people and i look at all the numbers and i look at all these things it kind of became a group of two at the top a third in scherzer and then another group that kind of separated themselves with two more Mm -hmm. and it all kind of like it was funny because five was almost the perfect number for the nl cy young i mean i know this isn't something that you, you you being in the al a lot of times i say like the american league might as well be like the nhl to me 
Um, <laughs> Fair. <laughs> um, I feel um, you. I feel you. And and so like I know you're not familiar with this, but I was looking at it and like it's almost like if you could do a, like a rank system, if you had like 50 points or 100 points to 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 push around to these people, like my difference between Wheeler and Burns would be very small. Yeah. Like I went back and forth, and you've done this, I'm sure, a hundred times on different things that you've done, where you're like, "Ooh, I just don't know. I don't know which one." And 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 the thing I kept coming back to, and I've, it's funny, I've done this with so many Cy Young votes, is like, and I, I think this was this was this year too. It's like I don't think there was a right answer, and I don't think there was a wrong answer. One hundred percent, one hundred percent. But I was forced to have an answer. Right. Yeah, Trent, I want you to answer this as well, Alex, but we're going to start with Trent because Trent did have have the vote. Of course, he did vote for Burns. Burns threw what I think it was 167 innings. Let me take a quick look. Wheeler, 213. Yeah. Jacob deGrom threw 92. How many innings would deGrom have needed to throw with the rest of his numbers to have gotten your vote? You know, it's funny. It's like a magical thing. And one of the things I was really leaning Wheeler on some of this. And then I kept looking at things and maybe it's because I've seen the Brewers a lot. And also, I think I don't think it's unfair to say 2021 is a season that is unlike any other. It's not as different as 2020, but it was different in 2021 uh, because of the unknowns and not knowing what people were able to do. You know, Corbin Burns pretty much did what he was asked to do, as did Zach Wheeler. And with those innings and those things, you know, the the Brewers had a six-man rotation for a while, so that cut out a couple starts. He was on the COVID list. That cut out some starts. I mean, like, you know, am I am I going to punish him for having being on the COVID list? No. Am I going to punish him that when, you know, when I saw the Phillies, and when I saw the Brewers, you saw two managers doing the exact different thing because of the personnel they had. Craig Council wanted to get to his bullpen as soon as possible. Joe Girardi wanted to stay away from his bullpen as much as possible. One had a great bullpen. The other had a one. Am I allowed to say A crappy, a terrible one. Um, and so, like, Zach Wheeler was asked to do that. And he did what he was asked. And that did stretch and that did hurt his numbers. But I don't want to hurt him for that. And I also don't want to hurt Corbin Burns for doing exactly what his team needed of him to win. And what they felt was like, am I punishing him because there was a six-man rotation? Am I punishing him because, you know what? That third time of the order penalty is real. And they didn't have to pay it because Stearns built a good bullpen. You know, and, and, and am I hurting Corbin Burns because... The Phillies bullpen was a disaster, and I know of disastrous bullpens because I watched one all year. No, I mean, he did what he was asked to do. It's not like he was injured for half the season or that just would get to the sixth inning and stop. No, he'd get through the sixth inning, and then, uh, you know, Craig Council would say, all right, give me the ball. Like, and what he did when he was on the mound was dominant. And, and so, like, to me, he was just the better pitcher when he was on the mound. And I felt weird dinging him for the fact that he had a good bullpen. Trent, that was a very good answer. And it was also a very long answer that did not ask <laughs> the specific question that was asked of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so the DeGrom, I don't know. I, I think I did say that. I don't know. Uh, that's my answer to that one. 
But yeah, I did look at DeGrom and then you just go, oof, it's not enough innings. And it wasn't because of some philosophical thing or injury. You know, and we, we had this a couple of years ago. I think, um, I'm trying to think of the year that, that Kershaw was just unreal. And, but he didn't have, he had missed some time. And I had a Cy Young vote. I'm sure it's in there somewhere. Didn't we have a voting history thing somewhere on the website? I'll ask the president. He should know this. But I just remember that being a little different. It's like, when are those innings? And I honestly think that maybe 2021 is a little bit different when it comes to those innings. Just because it is, you're taking everything to an account. What, what is being asked of, of pitchers in 2021. And what is being expected and the the way that teams were using pitchers. Yeah, Alex, rather than having you answer the DeGrom question, let me ask you about who you would have voted for had there been a Cy Young Award in 1914. <laughs> American League. You, you should have gotten Steve Buckley on here, man. <laughs> yeah, he probably has already done research, right? Uh, he, he, he would have voted. He would have voted. But no, but no, seriously, Walter Johnson had 28 wins, a 1.72 ERA, and he led the league in strikeouts. Dutch Leonard had 19 wins, a 0.96 ERA, which is the lowest in the modern era, and he also had the best FIP. I've, I've already eliminated FIP, so, you know. <laughs> okay. But the, did the voters at the time eliminate FIP? Yeah, they were they were real they were B war people. Were they B war or F war, Dave? <laughs> um, I th I think they were definitely B war, Alex. Okay, okay, uh, okay. We'll throw flip out. Dutch Leonard, along with the record setting ERA, also led in strikeouts per nine. All of that said, Walter Johnson threw three hundred and seventy one innings, and Leonard threw two hundred and twenty five. So. Who gets your your number one vote? The guy who had a very good year with a huge amount of bulk innings or the guy who had the record setting rate stats? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, I, I think I, I don't want to say I don't want to say, oh, I would have simply committed to this over this. But, you know, as as I said, I do com I, I do believe very much in the significance uh, and centrality of uh of innings, like you get to a good point with when you ask the Grom question. It's also another another way of question of asking, like, how dominant does a reliever need to be in order to surpass a starting pitcher in terms of overall value? And like, aren't we comparing like apples to pears to oranges when we're thinking about uh, when we're thinking about the different workloads uh, evaluated by pitchers? And do we vote on the best orange or do we vote on on the best fruit from that group? Uh, there's there's not a straightforward question. It is pretty impressive that. Walter Johnson outpaced the rest of uh, the rest of the American League that year by 68 innings. That's pretty good. But in some ways, that I guess that is a uh, that is a pretty decent. I, I don't know what Walter Johnson's ex woba was, so that's a little bit of a struggle. But I, I do think you can make it. You can make a very straightforward case that on the mound you can judge a pitcher based on based on innings and ERA if you want to, or you can you can fold in other stuff like xERA like DRA and start, you know, start thinking through exactly what happened. I mean, that was a that was a really damn good season by Dutch Leonard, so I certainly don't want to uh don't want to slag on that. Why do you hate Dutch Leonard? Yeah, yeah, well, you know, he was uh he was he was known as a as a curmudgeonly sort among those like Steve Buckley covering the Red Sox that year. So, 
so that was, you know, no, I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, no axe to grind with Dutch Leonard. Although, you know, he, he threw uh, 11 games out of the bullpen that year. That's interesting. But yeah, I, I think that there's there's not a, I think that Trent is exactly right. It's not like a, like, okay, here's the well-defined gap between one and two. It's like, as you, it, you, you have to go through the exercise, not of just trusting someone else's catch-all statistic, but instead of figuring out what you weight, how much weight you assign to it, whether or not like the context of the stats that you're looking at and or the performances that you're looking at, how much that affects things. It's it's a really interesting exercise, which is part of the reason why it made me rethink in much more detail than I thought what I actually care about when evaluating pitcher performance. I mean, that I think it's such a good point that like I, I don't know. This is when you when you talk about those the the war stats and all those. Like that's why I love the war stats. And I think I remember talking to Ben Lindbergh about this last year on uh, what my MVP vote. To me, like I always go back. Like I love the war stats just to give me a general kind of like a general overview. Like okay, here are the guys. You know, like in a normal year, and then last year, of course, wasn't a normal year. I'm always like, well, plus minus one war is a wash. And I think even more with the pitching, it might be. But when I look at who are the top of the leaderboard, yeah, that gives me the good idea. And then I go deeper. I mean, those are like a blunt instrument as opposed to a precise instrument. And that's where I always start. I start with the war on on these things just because it gives me a good overview. And it's never going to be the answer, but it's going to give me kind of the group of people I'm looking at. Totally reasonable framing mechanism. Yeah, and with innings in mind, again, jumping back, not all the way back to the dead ball era, as I just did, but 1971, I saw that Mickey Lolich led the American League in wins with 25. He led in strikeouts and innings. He finished second to Vita Blue because Blue was far more dominant on a, on a rate basis. So I think Maybe these debates about the value of innings and rate stats actually do go back a, a generation or two. I don't think they're they're new discussions. No, we just use different terminology for them. Yeah, and it's what Vita Blue and his uh, so Vita Blue came up short with his three hundred twelve innings that year. <laughs> that is something, isn't it? And I believe they both had over uh, three hundred Ks. Wow. And I just mentioned the the win total that Lolich had twenty five. Once upon a time, as all, all the listeners know, wins were really big in Cy Young Award voting. They are not anymore, fortunately. But that said, Julio Urias barely registered in voting this year. I believe he got three fifth place votes and nothing better. He went 20 and three mm -hmm. in an era where nobody wins 20 anymore. And it wasn't a hollow 20 in that he had a very good ERA. It was under three. I believe his FIP, uh, sorry, Alex, will yeah. cite FIP here, I think it was 3.13. <laughs> Are either, either of you surprised that he didn't get more support? You know, he was in that like six, seven, eight, four, five, six, seven, eight group for me. And I, I thought he would, I mean, he got a couple votes thrown in there. I mean, there was just, to me, there was a top three that were so dominant and then there were the other guys and there were so many dodgers i don't know i i'm never with five i'm not that surprised i mean i remember the old days when we did three so it, no i'm not surprised but he had a great season and that's the thing is like if you don't win the cy young it doesn't mean you didn't have a great season trent did you even look at win loss like do you know who what like how many games your the candidates you were looking at won 
I put how many wins they had, yeah, on my spreadsheet. Yeah, I, I didn't. I uh, and honestly, like I, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I do not know the season long win totals. I, I don't think of uh, of any of the candidates for whom I voted. I did, but like again, that's something that I know. Yeah. So like I have it on there, but I also know like well, I don't weigh column C as much as I do D E F G H. You know? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So yeah. Right. No, it has struck it has struck me, gents, a few conversations I've had with pitchers in the last year or two, and, and you probably have had similar ones, in that pitchers do still value wins. And I've had it pointed out to me, hey, if you win 16, 18, 20 games, what that really says is that you stayed in the game long enough to get an opportunity for your team to earn those wins. So I think there is some value in that, even though we are not going to weigh wins especially. Well, they still count in arbitration. <laughs> And what means more than arbitration, right? No, nothing. I mean, honestly, it's like in the end, awards are nice. Cash is better. <laughs> it's a it's a fair point. It's I mean, it is interesting. I think that you know, pitchers pitchers have clearly devalued wins to some extent, but not completely. And I mean, it's you know, it is it is viewed as a marker of you know, like in the same way that pitchers pitchers attach a considerable amount of importance to to innings those counting stats matter like that is a, there's a cumulative thing that occurs there and the fundamental part of competition is winning and losing right so you, um you play so at a visceral level that matters a lot to pitchers to a lot of pitchers at any rate uh maybe not Jacob deGrom <laughs> because he's had to uh because he's he's had to like engage in a zen like exercise of getting screwed out of wins uh left and right but there there is a part of it that is reflective of the act of competing for pitchers in a way that it probably doesn't for for a lot of other members of the industry at this point right and we also have saves relievers were winning Cy Youngs periodically for a while we haven't seen that recently but i wonder if we will going forward with bullpen arms playing more of a role does that seem seem right to you guys yeah i think that you could have like an insane you know wpa season for uh for a reliever who is utterly dominant like I, you know if zach Britton had been you know had been more versatile in the year where uh where he did get some uh, a reasonable amount of cy young consideration and had had been operating in somewhat higher leverage situations i i would think that there would be I would think that there's going to be grounds for consideration of relievers, especially as starting pitcher innings continue to decrease. Yeah, and and especially, I think you almost would have to do something that stood out as a little different, like Josh Hader a couple years ago, Mm -hmm. where he was routinely going to or coming in in the eighth. Because I I don't think we're going to see really that many, like like just just somebody who, who racked up the saves who beats the save record. I, I just don't see that being the guy who is able to to do it. I think he almost has to have a hook, like a news hook to get there. I mean, and we see that. Like, I I don't think like, oh God, like narrative drives, like, like I hate the use of narrative as a pejorative, probably because I write. And <laughs> when I write, I like to have narratives. I think it's, it's, it's Yay, narrative. It yeah. It interesting. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I love that, but like, I don't think you're going to have just an Eric Gagne winning the Cy Young again unless he does it differently and kind of makes us think differently about the the position or the or the the role because I I, I do I foresee some of this backlash coming in and people thinking more about innings and as innings are less not valued because I I think they're still valued but as 
the 200 inning pitcher dies, I think that 200 innings is going to be something where you look at it and maybe you go, whoa, this guy did have a much better season. And I, I think it might even get valued more in the future, even though that sounds counterintuitive. Well, with narratives in mind, Trent, a time where somebody did throw 200 innings and everybody went, wow. And here we're jumping back into my uh, Steve Buckley era uh, commentary. 1974, Mike Marshall won the NL Cy Young pitching in 106 games, 208 innings. I was a little surprised when I looked and saw that he was only 12th that year in in pitcher war. Hmm. Uh, He had 15 wins. I think he went 15 and 12 and 21 saves. So while he did was absolutely unbelievable and historic, just how great of a season was that from a rate stat standpoint? Yeah, it's, it's one of those, but like, I don't think you can, you need context. Context is always important. I like, I find it hard to even talk about what Mike Marshall did because it's so different and that I seem to, I I feel like I lack the context to really have a good opinion about it. Yeah. And I think that, and I I think that again, that's one where like he's a relief pitcher, right? Like pitcher war is not going to, doesn't necessarily capture the, capture the role that he was being asked to perform in, right? And his role was singular, wouldn't measure, it wouldn't track well in terms of a counting stat like war, you know, a a combination counting rate stat like war. Like, yeah, I, I think that that's, that's exactly what Trent was just talking about. Like there is a singularity to that performance that makes it utterly fascinating. And you definitely want to like, want to look deeper into what exactly it meant that he did what he did. But I mean, 106 games where he's averaging two innings a shot. That is just mind blowing. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, it is something to behold, I suppose. No, it is mind blowing. And a a year before uh, Marshall set his record, the Tigers, John Hiller, I think went maybe 65 games, 125 innings. He had 38 saves, 10 wins, an ERA of about 1.4, and he got down ballot votes. His combined wins and saves total was more than half of what the entire team did that year. So that boils down into how much did you actually contribute to your team? No doubt. Yes. <laughs> Either of you can jump in on that. Yes. <laughs> Hard agree. <laughs> no, there there is value. Is you know, it's just like Hater right now comes in and will pitch multiple innings, unlike most relievers, and that does help gain him not only saves but also wins which makes him an inv- invaluable pitcher. Well, I do think that like there's a struggle to appreciate like there's there's a struggle to capture statistically the like the significance of marginal innings, right? Like one and a third innings um is arguably much more significant than one inning in the same way that you can make a case that like the the difference between 6 and 7 innings is not linear, but instead that that 6 that 6th to 7th inning or that second time through the order to the third time through the order is kind of an exponential or at least like or at least parabolic increase uh in terms of uh in terms of what's going on and you know but again right now i i think that that's something that we assess subjectively but it's uh it's some interesting like it's you know like the uh, a two inning reliever is way different i you know i i cannot tell you how many people on the red sox were just in awe of Garrett Whitlock this year because because he ended, he only ended up pitching you know whatever eighty innings but the fact that it was so many multi inning appearances what that did for the rest of the pitching staff the way that it impacted the ability to do what Trent was talking about 
with Burns in terms of squeezing the number of innings uh, that were being asked from the starting pitchers, uh, the way that it kind of took some of the heat off of other pitchers in the um, in the late innings pecking order. It was massive. And I, I don't think that we basically I, I don't think that we have a we don't have precise instruments, at least in terms of publicly facing metrics that account for the value of marginal innings. Yeah, we are starting to run out of time, but I want to hit on a few more things relative to to assessing value. We'll give you a quiz here. Uh oh. <laughs> I know I know every guests always love quizzes. Nobody told me there was gonna be a test. <laughs> I've already failed like the Dutch Leonard test, so you know I'm i I'm scrambling on Vita this has been tough, man. Yeah, this <laughs> this one is topical. Lowest batting average on balls in play in the last twenty years, minimum five hundred innings. Any guesses? <laughs> Clearly, I prepped uh, neither of you on this question ahead of time. Mariano Rivera? Uh, he is close. He is not in the top two. The top two are both active. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, this is just Babbitt on balls in play? Yes. Honestly, I have no idea. I have no earthly idea. Yeah. One is Tyler Clippard. Two is Darren O'Day. Yeah. I figured it had to be a reliever. Yeah. I thought that maybe Britain would be, but I don't know. Like ground balls tend to be like, you know, tend to be higher on the Babbitt you know, on the Babbitt scale, then they find holes, whereas uh, whereas weak fly balls tend not to. So two very different birds with Clippard and uh, O'Day, huh? Well, they are, although I don't think O'Day is maybe quite as much of a, a ground ball guy as as you might think. As a typical a, a side, side armor. armor. Yeah. Right. Um, I brought that up, though, in part because predictably both of these pitchers have far lower ERAs than they do FIPS. So, you know, how exactly do you measure just how effective these guys are at quote-unquote missing bats when they're very, very effective without missing bats. Boo Fip. I, I really <laughs> think like I really think that, you know, two-thirds of all plate appearances end with balls in play. Like it makes no sense to me that we would judge a pitcher's performance, you know, based on that. Like even getting into XFIP where you're trying to take into account that there's some randomness with regards we have better instruments than, you know, we we should not dismiss the art of pitching, the art of being able to generate bad contact. I think that that's a fundamental, like, one of the things, one of the dings on Robbie Ray relative to Garrett Cole, one of the things that I wrestled with a bit was uh, Robbie Ray had an obscene strand rate, right? Like, he stranded something like 90% of runners uh, of, of runners this year. Amazing. Um, and in one sense, if you're predicting what Robbie Ray is going to be moving forward, like you ding him for that. That's a that's a shortcoming on his part because there's zero chance that that's a replicable behavior. On the other hand, it's what happened in a game. And so uh, maybe he deserves more credit for the fact that he stranded that many runners. Like maybe that's a sign of outstanding pitching, even if it's baked in with some luck in the middle of a year. It's uh it's a weird, weird thing, but I do not like I, I we are we are dismissing so much about pitching and we're you know, we're promulgating this abeyance of the three true outcomes model as what pitching is supposed to be the more that we rely on FIP. So Trent, you can either uh defend FIP here or tacitly agree with uh with Alex. Or explicitly do so. Well <laughs> uh, tacitly. Um... <laughs> I'm a, I'm a little afraid of the table banging I heard there. I'm intimidated by Alex. So I am not uh, a scary you know, like, person. Still... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I beg to differ. FIP, FIP, I will say this. Like, everything that goes into FIP is still things that happened. Like, all the data points are still things that happened. I don't know that it's the best. I don't know that any of these are the best. I think you 
take one and use it in totality. That's why it's not as easy as taking a war or some other number and just ranking. I think you have to understand exactly what it's saying, exactly what it adds, and what it adds to the big picture, and use that as one of the toolboxes, but not the multi-tool. Okay, we are starting to run over time here, but I do want to ask Alex if any consideration whatsoever went into giving a down-ballot vote to Eduardo Rodriguez, given that his luck this season statistically was absolutely abysmal. I, as someone who covered Eduardo Rodriguez all season long, I am aware of like the fact that ex-WOBA and ex-ERA actually graded pretty well for him, but he did not enter into my thinking in part because I did account in, because I did account for, I I did not want to focus on how a pitcher threw in a theoretical vacuum uh, or in kind of a laboratory setting, but instead, like, I do think that it impacted events that, bad luck events that occur in the context of a game, you have to adjust to them and suppress runs despite them, and he didn't do that. So I get the the reason for optimism about him moving forward, but uh, he did not. um, And I like Eddie, and I I thought that he pitched way better than traditional stats such as ERA suggested. And, you know, the defense behind him was terrible, but I didn't give him any thought for Cy Young. Yeah, I'm not surprised you being Mr. Anti-FIP. Well, (laughs) no, I mean, if you, like, in a fielding, if you account for the balls in play, you know, if you account for the balls in play with things like ex-WOBA and ex-ERA, you know, I, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not a Luddite here, right? Like I'm, uh, but I, I you know, I, I am well aware of the fact that he pitched, There, there's a case to be made for how well he pitched, but there were other limiting factors such as innings, such as, you know, such as how he responded to some of those situations that played a part in why he wasn't a consideration for me. No, you are far from, from a Luddite, Alex. Uh, let's close with a question for Trent. I feel obligated to ask you why the Reds let Wade Miley go. At the end of the season, for nothing, given that he was arguably their best starting pitcher this year. Yeah, I mean, like, if you want to go on the results, he was. Basically, ownership said, you have to use this kind of, this is this is your budget. This is what you have. And I think, you know, from the people I've talked to, most teams saw Wade Miley as about a 6 or $7 million a year pitcher in 2022, not in 2021. It's not like it's not like they didn't say, "Oh, wow, we uh, we should just let him go and not trade him." I know Dick Crawl tried to trade him, and nobody was like wanted to give up anything for ten million. And if the Reds then eat money, not only are they getting rid of their best pitcher, but then they're not doing the reason they're not having him back, which is to save money. Now I don't know all the ins and outs, and Bob Castellini is not my boss, but I think the team's better if you have Wade Miley than if you don't. However, I will also say, and Wade Miley was the guy who did all those things that Alex was talking about. He limited, you know, damage when guys did get on. You you want to talk about pitchability or whatever things. He did those. He was, (laughs) you know, they got rid of two of the guys that I thought were a very big reason their pitching staff was able to do what it was able to do in, in Wade Miley and Tucker Barnhart. Another guy that, if it's not about, the reason he's no longer with the Reds is not about being better. It's about money. So yeah, so basically it was to, it was to save money. He had to save money. They valued him probably, I don't know, six or seven million, but not ten. And when you're trying to cut every little corner as they have the last two years, like when they, you know, didn't tender Archie Bradley last year. 
those things add up and not only by how they by putting him on waivers not only did they not exercise his contract they also didn't buy it out so that saved another million dollars and it sounds terrible it's bad optics i mean <laughs> you know nick crawl has to answer to it but that's ultimately we all have bosses and uh it, to be a better team in 2022 they would have wade miley but that is not what ownership prioritized ownership said you have to spend x amount of dollars and so for Nick Kroll, a guy who, you know, presumably wants to keep his job, he has to say, well, if I'm going to have this amount of dollars, how am I going to best maximize that? How am I not going to make the best team possible, but how am I going to make the best team possible at X amount of payroll? And Wade Miley apparently hurt that in their estimation. Right. And Wade Miley, of course, money aside, age aside, because he is no spring chicken, has been a very good pitcher for the last three or four years. Um, well, not, not last not, year. Not, not last in 2020. Year. Well, that was maybe just a handful of innings in the COVID season. I think that right. we, can we can toss that out for most anybody. But if you take out FIP from the equation, he's not a FIP pitcher. He has consistently kept his team in games. He's had decent, he, he's had decent success in the win-loss column and, and ERA. Yeah. And, and more importantly, he was effing great for reporters. Like <laughs> nobody took a, the Reds didn't take a bigger hit than I took this off season, losing Wade Miley and Tucker Barnhart. I mean, that, that kills me. And that's what I honestly care about because my job was a lot easier with Tucker Barnhart and Wade Miley. And speaking of easy jobs, if I want to keep mine, at least in terms of keeping my producer happy, I think we will sign off. So I will thank Alex and Trent for being guests on Fangraphs Audio. Thanks so much for having me. And, uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll look forward to hearing how, uh, how Trent felt about uh, Dutch Leonard and his uh, <laughs> and the, and the Red Sox decision to move on from him a century That's, ago. It's coming up. Um, <laughs> it really is. I mean, we know those early Red Sox teams had some payroll issues and made some <laughs> bad choices because of payroll. So, yes, they did. Not as bad as the uh, Marcus Lynn bets trade, but yes, they, they had some issues. Hey, uh, thanks everybody for listening. And I hope that your table is full with family and uh, a good meal on Thanksgiving. Thanks a lot. Happy Thanksgiving to you guys. Thanks, guys. Hello, this is Jay Jaffe for Fangraphs Audio. It's Hall of Fame season, and in addition to the Baseball Writers Association of America ballot, which was released on Monday, November 22nd, we have a double dose of ERA committee ballots, which were postponed due to last year's uh, coronavirus pandemic. Uh, namely, we've got the early baseball ballot covering candidates who made their biggest mark in the major leagues uh, before 1950, and the Golden Days ERA committee ballot for those who made their biggest mark from 1950 to 1969. There's been a lot of anticipation about both of these ballots, since these candidates haven't been voted on in quite some time. The last time the Golden Days uh, candidates were considered, it was uh, the 2015 uh, Golden Era Committee ballot before the uh, Era Committee process was rejiggered. And the last time the early baseball candidates were considered, it was uh, via the 2016 pre-integration ballot, poor euphemism for that one, which referred mainly to the fact that candidates from the Negro Leagues and the pre-Negro Leagues Black Baseball weren't considered at all because the Hall of Fame considered those books closed after the 2006 special election in which 17 players and other candidates were elected, but notably not Buck O'Neill. So it's been a long time coming for all these candidates. 
And it's been an even longer time since since anyone from either of these two eras was elected. You'd have to go back to uh, the 2013 pre-integration ballot to find anyone uh, elected. At Fangraphs, I've been chewing my way through the Golden Days ballot because those candidates are more familiar to me and because I wrote about them for the Cooperstown Casebook. I have not dug in yet to the early baseball ballot, but uh, with me here is a friend and fellow Hall of Fame head, Adam Dorowski, who's the head of user experience at Sports Reference and somebody who I often tug on the sleeve of for help in navigating baseball reference and getting new features and in just talking about Hall of Fame candidates. Welcome to the show, Adam. Hey, Jay. Thanks so much for having me on. Glad you're here, especially because I owe you, I owe you a bit of turnabout. <laughs> uh, earlier this summer, Adam did a big series called Building the Ballot, in which he talked to a whole bunch of people about the golden days and early baseball ballots. And we went through, I don't know how many candidates it was, in discussing the candidates from the white leagues for the early baseball ballot. And uh, I'm, looking at the, I'm looking at this, and Adam had me on for a podcast that lasted one hour and 12 minutes. Um, we went through, we, we were exhaustive and I was exhausted uh, by the end of it here. And it turns out only one of those guys made it on the ballot. So I figured it's, it makes sense for us to uh, to talk about these guys again, this time on my turf. Uh, so Adam, I hope you brought your notes and uh, we're going to lean on you for that. Excellent. Yeah. It, I think it was something like 35, 36 candidates that we discussed. Of course, our, our episode was only covering the, the white major leagues. And lo and behold, seven out of the 10 candidates have come from the Negro leagues or pre-Negro leagues era. So that's both exciting, but you know, we just, we discussed a lot of players that we probably didn't need to discuss. Yeah, it's interesting. I, and, and I, I'm, you know, I'm intrigued by, by the depth of your knowledge in, in the, uh, uh, for the Negro Leagues and, and pre-Negro Leagues guy, because I because I know that you had a lot of conversations ab- about those, and I'm I, you know I'm still feeling my way around that stuff. But uh, uh, first, I wanted to get your take on the Golden Days ballot. You know, I think a lot of these names were fairly predictable in terms of who'd be on. Uh, these are some candidates who have who I think we we could agree are long suffering, uh, even though some of them are no longer with us. But their their fans and other supporters are, have have been through this uh, before. What are your general impressions of the ballot and who do you feel should have been on here that that wasn't? Yeah, my general impression is it was pretty predictable, like you said, and it's a very strong ballot, uh, a lot of good candidates. I was pleasantly surprised to see Danny Murtaugh. I don't usually get excited about managerial candidates, but I think that he is one of the, certainly the best managers outside of the Hall of Fame. I was a little surprised to see Roger Maris. And in terms of disappointment, I was most disappointed to not see Bill Freehand. He has never been on a Veterans Committee ballot yet. And uh, given his passing, I thought that that may have been... <laughs> You know, given given the track record of the era right. committees, they usually focus on players once they have passed. So I was a little surprised not to see him. Yeah, I, I was I was too. I have to say, um, and I wonder. You know, I, I did not get an official ruling on this from the Hall of Fame, but uh, like you said, Freehan has never been on a ballot, and which means that we don't actually know whether he's classified in this era or in the modern baseball era. His career straddled uh, the line. He played until 1976. I think it's 61 to 76. So he credibly could could have been part of the the later era, although I think more of his accomplishments, his bigger accomplishments, were probably date to the uh, the 1950 to 69 period. Certainly, uh, the Tigers championship with it, with him uh, uh, starring behind the plate and finishing as runner up in the uh, 1968 AL MVP voting was uh, uh, was from the earlier time. But uh, I never did reach out to the Hall to get a ruling on that and find out. But it's a little disappointed there. 
I agree with you. Murda stands out to me as one of the best managers outside the hall. I'm actually, as we speak, uh, working on his profile, the last of mine for that ballot. Have you figured out who you would vote for if you had the uh, typical four slot ballot? Yeah, I, it's one of those things where I've I've got two lists. One is like who I think are the best candidates on merit. And then who mm-hmm. I would strategically vote for, because we have three living candidates. And I think that needs to be considered because also because of the track record of this era committee in particular of putting people in after they pass away. I think Alan and Minioso could join that group as well. So we do have Maury Wills, Jim Cott, and Tony Oliva who are alive. So in terms of merit, I would certainly go uh, Minioso and Alan first. And then after that, it would probably be Ken Boyer. And then with my fourth spot that would have gone to Bill Freehan, I would probably give that to either Billy Pierce or Danny Murtaugh. But uh, in terms of how I would vote, I would go for Alan and Minoso, but I would also vote for Oliva and Cott as the the best living candidates. Uh, huh. Just because I think it would be great to see them get in uh, while they're alive. It's not something that happens a lot with this era committee. Right. Yeah. No. That's that, that's an interesting point of view, and I, I I agree with you. I think I probably would have had would would have the same four guys if we're talking strictly merit. Alan, I, I think Minnie Minoso is the is the number one candidate outside the Hall of Fame for his pioneering efforts as as the first Black Latino player and and a superstar who who uh, Orlando Cepeda called our Jackie Robinson. You know, and, and I think Dick Allen is is uh, a strong second uh, in that group, and 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 Ken Boyer a very solid third. I I lean towards uh, Murdaugh on merit, but I you know I I I do I do think as well that uh, yes I would give at least some thought. To to recognizing a living candidate of the three of them, the one I'm probably most sympathetic to is Oliva. You know, I'd like to see I, I'd like to see a living candidate elected, or I'd be happy if if one of them's elected. I, I I think his his career holds up a little bit better to me than the other two. I think War, the Baseball Reference version of War, really takes a bite out of Jim Cott's numbers, uh, yeah. particularly that 1965 season in which he he pitched three games in the World Series uh, for the Twins against the Dodgers, including Game Seven. Um, I think that one comes up as uh, only about a one and a half win season, even though he went 18 and 12 with a, a, a three-ish ERA. But Oliva with his two batting titles and that just great eight-year run there from uh, uh, early in his career stands out to me as a guy I, I think I really would have enjoyed watching. Yeah, and one thing about Oliva too is six times in a row now on these era committees, he's gotten 50% of the vote or more. And along with Allen last time, he came one vote shy. So the fact that he's still with us and he's basically been tortured by this process, right. I would love to see him get in. Yeah, that's fair enough. I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be sad if he if he got in. I, I, I just I hope it doesn't block, you know, one of these other candidates dead or alive. I think that would be to me, that would be a real shame. Mm-hmm. Okay, moving on to the early baseball ballot here. We've got 10 candidates, of which only three played in the white major leagues, and only one is a carryover from from the uh, 2016 pre-integration ballot, and that's Bill Dolan. And I know that uh, Dolan is somebody that uh, you know a lot about because of your, uh, your, your previous research. Yeah, I, I'm on the Sabre 19th Century Overlooked Legends Committee, and he was one of the very first selections from that group. I think he's another 
old player that has gotten a, a big boost from wins above replacement. He's around 75 war. So a lot of people point to him as, as one of the highest outside, which he ab- absolutely is. And I think that a, a similar player would be Alan Trammell, who was recently elected. He's just one of those shortstops with the long career, very valuable on offense when you consider his position. He was, you know, a little bit above average for a long career and then a very good defensive shortstop as well. So. To me, he's a slam dunk. I was glad to see him on. He's come close on these ballots before. He came two votes shy in 2013, but then dropped back a little in 2016. And this could potentially be uh, the year that he takes a step forward. Yeah, Dolan is 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 a strong two way shortstop. Baseball Reference has him uh, with a 110 OPS plus and 139 runs above average defensively. Uh, he's 11th in Jaws. He helped uh, the Brooklyn Superbas to two championships and then the, the Giants to two championships. Uh, I believe at one point he had the NL record for the longest hitting streak. That was, I believe that was the one broken by Pete Rose. Still uh, fourth all time, actually. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. There you go. And uh, as you said, the, the Sabre overlooked uh, baseball legend. He was the 2012 winner of that. Like you said, uh, very close uh, in, in 2013, 10 of the necessary 12 votes out of 16. And then he slipped last year or, or slipped in 2016 to eight votes. I was really surprised that Doc Adams, the the pioneer who is credited with creating the shortstop position and in doing a lot of the other things that uh, the Hall of Fame uh, has previously recognized Alexander Cartwright for, uh, was not on the ballot because I believe he was the top vote getter in 2016 with 10 votes. Yeah, that was absolutely frustrating because I, I know Marjorie Adams or knew Marjorie Adams, his great granddaughter, right. who really championed uh, his case. She got him on the ballot along with John Thorne's incredible research. Right. And to see him finally get on the ballot and then come just two votes away, but then to be left off this time around was absolutely deflating to that whole, the whole uh, process. And of course, we, just like we lost a lot of these players here, we lost Marjorie Adams earlier this year as well. So yeah, I think that that had a lot to do with maybe the 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 breaks being pumped on his case a little bit and focusing more on uh, the Negro League legends because that's kind of the new thing that's going on now, rather than you know Doc Adams. Yeah, I you know I I was somebody who uh, was advocating to make sure that that there were uh, you know. Uh, experts in Negro Leagues and black baseball who were involved in the putting together of the, of this ballot. And I was pleasantly surprised to see when they announced those names, uh, I believe it was last month, they had five very qualified individuals who, who uh, uh, with the history of studying black baseball to varying degrees. And, and I thought that that was, that was a big plus. I was still very surprised that this, that this ballot uh, had seven black candidates on it uh, and that, uh, that it was without Adams. And, you know, I think the, the amount of research uh, and attention that has gone into the, to the uh, Negro leagues and pre-Negro leagues, black candidates, both uh, uh, thanks to Major League Baseball's acknowledgement of considering the, the Negroes as uh, Negro Leagues as majors, uh, and also you know the expanded offerings that you guys have brought out uh, at Baseball Reference based on the on the Seamheads database. You know it's a very ripe time for all this stuff, and I think that's great. I I, I just wish that this you know that we weren't going to have to wait another ten years for mm-hmm. for any of these candidates if if they don't get in. Right. I, on the one hand, I'm like, oh, maybe we could have just left off Allie Reynolds and put on Doc Adams. But then I think you're going to see even more great candidates split the vote. Maybe right. with Doc Adams off the ballot, it makes it uh, more likely that we'll see some Negro League candidates actually get in the hall. Yeah. Let's okay. So let's before we talk about those guys, let's talk about the the two the two candidates from the white majors here, Allie Reynolds and, and Lefty O'Doul. Reynolds was a big star for the Yankees uh, as as a pitcher, but he had a pretty short career. 
Yeah, I, I I'm surprised that he was on the ballot. I guess it's it's World Series uh, numbers that are really getting him on the ballot. He had six World Series rings. He was fantastic in the World Series, uh, seven and two with a two point seven nine ERA. And I think that that's the bulk of his case. He's only a twenty five WAR pitcher. Uh, he won twenty games in the regular season just once. He has been on these era committee ballots and veterans committee ballots many, many times before, like something like been considered like 20 times or something. Yeah. He's never come close except for one year that he came one vote shy. And wow. I, I don't, I don't know if that's, that's something that, uh, right. has him coming back because he came just one vote shy, but I don't think he's a great candidate. I think he's definitely 10th out of 10 on my ballot here. And I think there's probably 30 or 40 candidates that would have been better picks for this ballot. Yeah, I, I, I kind of agree with you. I, you know, one thing that's sort of intriguing to me, and I think War probably undervalues him a little bit because of his work as a reliever. He did a lot of pitching on his throw days and a lot of uh, fireman work for the Yankees uh, in those years. I believe he's got, uh, in his 15 World Series appearances, he's got nine starts, six relief appearances, five games finished, and four saves. Yeah. Uh, and I know that when I was writing about Billy Pierce uh, just the other day, uh, the only pitcher from the uh, period uh, uh, that had more saves uh, than Pierce did uh, was Allie Reynolds had something like 44 saves in the uh, in the in the 40s and 50s was just commonly called upon you know to come to the rescue on, on on days he wasn't starting so I wonder if that's it I also think that it's possible that you know in a in a year where they're highlighting so many black players, Alan's background as a, as a Native American uh, of the Cherokee tribe, uh, I think that I wonder if that may have played a role in it. Um, he's a, he's an interesting candidate in isolation, but you're right, you know, in the context of all these other candidates, I mean, it feels like he's just sort of along for the ride. Yeah, I I had a very similar reaction. Odul to me is is interesting in a in a different way, though. I mean, you know, he got such a slow start to his career, up and down with the Yankees. Uh, really, they they left him around. In a, pretty much doing nothing other than like throwing batting practice and occasionally pinch hitting for, for a few years, did some pitching, had a big year in the, in the Pacific coast league, went down to the Pacific coast league for, for a four year period, including two years in Salt Lake city, my, my hometown. And then came back to the majors and was like a great hitter for six or six or seven years, won a couple of batting titles, hit 353 over this stretch with a 145 OPS plus, it's a high offense era, so you can't get too wrapped up in the in the raw numbers. But you know, then he retires to manage in the Pacific Coast League and kind of opens up base opens up uh, Japan to baseball uh, right. with an All Star tour in 1933, some other tours uh, in the 30s, and then after the after World War II in 1949, he begins uh, going over again to try to foster some reconciliation. Yeah, he's a very uh, different type of candidate than what we usually see on these ballots. He was an incredible player, but not for nearly long enough, just right. like 3,600 plate appearances. Uh, had a long minor league career where it's kind of funny, his minor league stats are essentially the mirror image of his major league stats. A huge figure in the PCL. I don't know how much that goes into Cooperstown cases, though. Yeah. And then, like you said, in Japan, he was a huge pioneer of getting baseball over there. So his candidacy is a little bit more on the, the the soft skills side that I'm not as good at uh, deciphering whether that's Hall of Fame worthy or not. Right. But um, he's a compelling candidate. I think, again, there's, there are just others on this ballot that are more compelling, but Lefty is not someone that I would say no to. Yeah, I you know I know that he's he's got his advocates out there, and it, and it is a pretty interesting can you know candidacy. I wonder what would have happened if he'd been just playing the outfield straight from 
from 1919 onward and you know what kind of what kind of uh, offensive stats he could have put up because uh uh the guy could clearly hit and you know it's it, it's almost a shame we didn't get a full career of that mm-hmm. but you know you bring up something interesting there and that's the, the kind of the soft skills and the, and the just I th- one thing I, I think it's very hard with these ten candidates, and we'll see as we go through the through, through the other ones, is that we're doing a lot of apples to oranges comparisons here. This isn't as simple as like firing up a baseball reference page and, and looking at Jaws rankings and OPS plus rankings and you know dealing with stat heads searches. This is a lot of you know we've got we've got players who you know who starred in the Negro Leagues uh, when they were majors. We've got a lot of pre Negro League stars. We've got guys for whom we don't have a whole lot of statistics. We've got uh, managers. It's a real mixed bag, and I find it very challenging. And I, I, you know, I'm I'm very interested to see what people who know know a lot more about this stuff than me think of think of the relative merits. Yeah, that, that's the exact reason why I started my podcast was to try to learn about these guys. Like everything I know about these new girl league candidates has mostly come about in the last year, just taking the baseball reference stats that we added and talking to experts like Scott Simkis I had on my podcast. He's from the, the Seamheads database. And then just, you know, every once in a while sending questions along to Gary Ashwell or Kevin Johnson, also from the Seamheads crew. And uh-huh. over time I've, I've kind of gotten to, to build these, these pictures of these candidates and decide who I think is, is more hall worthy. And some candidates I have, I feel very strongly about already based on what I've learned. And some there, there are a ton that I, I feel like could be hall of famers. The more we learn as box scores are still coming in and we're learning more. Right. So, okay. So who to you, who do you find as, as, as the most compelling of these candidates here? Well, I, I guess you could say Buck O'Neill, uh, which is okay. probably not the answer that you were looking for there because he wasn't one of the quote unquote player candidates. I don't even know what category he'll go into. He was a decent player, a good manager. He was the the first black coach in the AL and NL. He's just going to go in for his role as an ambassador for the Negro Leagues. And I think it's it's definitely overdue. But in terms of players, gosh, they, they made some great picks. But the one that I am the most in favor of is Home Run Johnson, which he actually started his career in the 1890s and uh, played at the turn of the 20th century. But he was a shortstop, later became a second baseman. Seamheads has 18 years of data for him, just 405 games, but that's that's still a decent sample. A lot of the games are in his 30s, so maybe not his peak, but they still have him with a 158 OPS plus, uh-huh. which from a shortstop and second baseman is, is pretty massive. Now, right. I want to introduce some work that Eric Shalak has done uh, on these uh, Negro League seasons. He has done MLEs or Major League Equivalencies, where he estimates what these would have translated to in the AL and NL of the day. And he essentially sees uh, Home Run Johnson as like a Bill Dolan or Alan Trammell type, 110 OPS plus over a long career, 2,600 uh-huh. hits, 70 for war. So basically the very similar type of player. And I do think those are actually pretty conservative estimates given he's starting with a 158 OPS plus. Yeah, I've 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 seen a little bit of Eric's work. I need to sink my teeth into it a little bit more. I appreciate, you know, the concept of the major league equivalencies which go back to Bill James 
you're working with, you know, kind of a, uh, scaling a, a hitter's performance to a given run scoring environment and, and estimating mm-hmm. how that player would do. It was something that was very, very intriguing in the early 80s for me when, when James started doing his abstracts because it was about figuring out what a guy who was hitting 373 at Albuquerque or Salt Lake City would do uh, in the major leagues because that was a very common question and people generally hadn't thought about ballpark adjustments in the same way that, you know, is, is second nature to us now. So I've seen some of Eric's work and it's good. I'm definitely uh, intrigued there. O'Neill to me, I think is interesting. You know, he's he's a modern day pioneer. Mm-hmm. His his playing career, the stats we have for him as a player are, let's call it mediocre, 97 OPS plus, uh, one, one season of, of uh, a 300 average and uh, – uh, I know he has said he hit 300 more often than that, but unfortunately, we don't have the box scores to to mm-hmm. bolster that claim. His uh, his managing of the of the Kansas City Monarchs mostly comes after the period of time when they're when they're major league, if I'm not mistaken. Right. But uh, he was the one of the early black scouts uh, for major league talent, responsible for signing players. Uh, I think Elston Howard is one of is one of his big ones. Lou Brock, uh, after he was he was employed by the Cubs. Uh, and then he becomes the first black coach, uh, black major league coach for the Cubs in the early 60s, although he wasn't part of the cockamamie college of coaches <laughs> that they had <laughs> going right. on there for a while. But his role as an ambassador, Joe Mor- the late Joe Morgan said he was probably the greatest ambassador the Negro Leagues ever had. Just keeping alive the stories of, of, of those players on uh, – uh, he was a member of, of – uh, uh, the Veterans Committee for a long time was prominently featured in in Ken Burns's baseball series. Uh, Joe Posnanski wrote a whole book uh, about him, and I think in the in the popular in, in terms of popularity, he's he's easily the most popular candidate here. I wondered though whether that distorts his merits in the same way that you know you might look at the at the Golden Days ballot and, and focus on Gil Hodges rather than uh, you know Minnie Minoso or somebody like that with. Uh, with stronger numbers. And, and I know that, that when uh, he came up for election in 2006, there was some disagreement as, as to his merits. Obviously, he's one of, I guess there were 39 finalists uh, on that ballot. 17 got in, 22 didn't. So there was some, there was some disagreement there as to, as to, as to, and I know there were some allegations thrown out, thrown out there afterwards by various uh, dissatisfied people who, you know, believed that uh, he should have been supported more or whatever. Yeah, I think those allegations are mostly related to the fact that the committee was told to essentially consider the Negro League career. So right. they can't consider the the role he played as an ambassador after the fact. I think that's the reason why Minimino also was left out of that yeah. election as well, because they could only factor in three years of his career. Yeah, I think I, I think you're right, and I, I I imagine you know obviously there was a lot of pressure on those the, on the on the voters to to do right by all these candidates, and it was kind of you know. It was in some ways it was a no-win situation when you had such, when you had those lengthy careers that could only be partially considered. The other one that stands out to me uh, is uh, Cannonball Dick Redding, fireballing pitcher whose career ran from 1911 to 1938, mainly for some of the top independent teams of the pre-Negro leagues era. He was uh, the stuff. The stuff I read, including uh, I think it's it's Eric's MLEs, puts him as one of the four best Negro leagues pitchers, along with Satchel Paige. Joe Williams and Bullet Joe Rogan, which means he was more highly regarded than Hilton Smith or, or Leon Day, both of whom were in the Hall of Fame. What do you think of him? 
I think that there's a very compelling case to say that he we have again 22 years of data actually have 326 games of his career and in that data at seam heads is 140 wins and 119 losses and a 115 era plus the era plus isn't that high but i mean that's a still a lot of wins uh and the contemporary accounts of of his work yeah puts him right up there with with smoky joe and satchel and those great pitchers i have not seen a reason not to lean towards dick redding for the hall of fame he certainly seems like a very compelling candidate. Uh, it's just that, you know, the, the only quote unquote major league data that we have is at the very tail end of his career. So that doesn't right. look so great. But the numbers that we do have before that do show signs of a very dominant pitcher. Right. So we have we have uh, we have a similar problem. I mean, to, I think probably to an even greater degree than when it comes to John Donaldson, um, who was known for his barnstorming. And in fact, was kind of credited with establishing the mo- the business model of uh, barnstorming for for black teams is that the 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 major league data we have for him is is pretty mediocre. Yes, he's a very complicated candidate. I think the most complicated of the Negro League candidates because most of his work was not in the Negro Major Leagues. When he did play in the Negro Major Leagues, he didn't pitch well. He hit pretty well actually, which is kind of surprising. But uh, he just went all over the place. And I think his best case is as a barnstorming pioneer. Our friend Eric Shalek, again, his his comps for for John Donaldson are not pretty. We're talking like Don Gullett or Eric Ooh. Bedard. Uh, not, not great because his 400 plus wins and 5,000 strikeouts – were against you know factory teams and right. I, it's very hard to translate it. He didn't yeah. play in in the highest level for very long. Does that mean he couldn't have? There isn't much evidence to be completely honest that he could. I just think that his story does make for a very compelling case as a pioneer. If if you're willing to go there, honestly, I I see the body of work from these other Negro League candidates as more compelling than Donaldson. Uh-huh. I have him as. Eight out of ten on on my ballot here, but a lot of people have Donaldson at uh, very near the very top, uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with popularity. There's been more press about John Donaldson lately, right. but you really have to consider who he was doing it against, and maybe look at how are we defining his Hall of Fame case. I I don't know how to define one for him yet. Yeah, I I, I agree. It's it's a it's a tough one to get a handle around, and 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 I think because it's tough, I I think it's he's probably facing an uphill battle in this context. Uh, let's talk about another pioneer, Bud Fowler, who's uh, acknowledged as, as 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 the first black professional player in 1978, before there were even black teams, uh, grew up in Cooperstown, played on integrated teams, often had to switch teams because, you know, he was basically run out of town, but he could pitch, he could catch, he played second base, uh, he was a good hitter by what we know, we don't have a lot of stats for him, unfortunately, but people, you know, people do seem to think that he was uh, certainly of major league caliber. Yes, and I know John, and I know John Thorne is a champion of his case, and if he's good enough for for John, he's definitely somebody. Uh, uh, I think we ought to take a very close look at. Yeah, this goes back to to Robert Peterson's "Only the Ball Was White." He was already talking about Bud Fowler as a a major league quality player. So he played ten years in the integrated minor leagues. He's the only player to play ten years in quote unquote organized baseball. The only black player until Jackie Robinson. So he's the only one that stuck for. Uh, that long of a, a period of uh-huh. time. Pretty much hit 300 wherever he went uh, based on the numbers that we do get from newspaper accounts. 
He was a, a great fielder. He was a great base runner. And he was a driving force behind the Page Fence Giants, uh, which was the very first barnstorming team of Black Stars that lasted multiple seasons. Now, he was a, a co-founder along with Home Run Johnson, actually. So Home Run Johnson does actually have pioneering bullet points on his resume as well. So that's why I'm very high on him. I'm also very high on Fowler. He was our 2020 Sabre 19th century overlooked legend. And uh, I think that uh, he's he's just got a great case. Okay, sorry, where do you where do you have him on your on your ballot if you're ranking uh, the ten? Bud Fowler. Yeah, I have Bud actually second. Second. Okay, so he's somebody who 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 you'd vote for then here. Yes. Okay. See, there's two others we haven't talked about here. One of whom has uh, has has credentials uh, primarily as a player, and the other is a player manager. Vic Harris is is the one as a as a player and manager. Managed the Homestead Grays to seven Negro National League pennants. Was also a left fielder and and a very good hitter. What do you what, what can you tell us about him? Oh, Vic Harris is, I mean, so some candidates like, like John Donaldson, you need to figure out how exactly they would be Hall of Famers. Vic Harris, I think, is just open and shut. He's probably the very best major league manager outside of the Hall of Fame in okay. terms of win-loss percentage and number of pennants and number of playoff appearances. He's the best outside the Hall of Fame in all of those categories. And then you add to it the fact that he's he was a great player too. He was an above-average outfielder who hit over 300 for his career for, I think it was 17 or 18 years. The MLEs put him at about a 40-war player. So, you know, a very solid, I don't know, maybe like a Dusty Baker, Felipe Alou type player. Uh-huh. And then you add add in that great managerial record as well. I think, I think he's... Uh, uh, definitely got a great case. Okay. And uh, George Tubby Scales, a stocky slugger who put up big numbers, including a, a, a 319 batting average, 421 on base, and 509 slugging percentage in nearly 2,600 plate appearances in the in the uh, major Negro Leagues uh, with teams like the uh, New York Lincoln Giants, Homestead Grays, New York Black Yankees, and Baltimore Elite Giants. I like to say it that way because I've learned that that's the right way to say it uh, right. according to the pronunciations of the day. Yeah. Tubby Scales was the the one that opened my eyes when these Negro League stats hit baseball reference because I was not nearly as familiar with his name at all. Uh-huh. Now, this is a guy who had 20 Major League seasons. He also has a gap between ages 29 and 33 and then another at age 36. So he played more seasons than that. But 20 years, a second baseman with a 147 OPS plus is just a, a, a huge, huge hitter. I was very happy to see him on here. I didn't think it would happen because he has like no momentum behind him. Mm-hmm. The MLEs have him as like a 120 OPS plus of 2,800 hits, 187 home runs and 68 war. So he's just a really great player. Uh, similarity scores would put him with like Jeff Kent, Bobby Gritch, Tony Lazeri, that type of player. Yeah, he seems to me like the one, the one that you could pull up, you know, pull up the baseball reference page and just ogle those stats and say, yeah, this is this is clearly one of the best guys that's outside the hall and and sh- and should probably be in based on, you know, comparisons to other Negro Leagues players. And I know that there, you know, there there's some disappointment about the ones who aren't on this ballot, names like John Beckwith and Rap Dixon, or whatever. Maybe not as not as long of careers, but uh, Scales seems to be the one uh, that. Uh, uh, kind of uh, standing in for those guys as as uh, a very strong stats case. Yeah, I was shocked not to see John Beckwith and Dick Lundy. I thought were like the two absolutely sure things to be on this ballot. Yeah, Lundy's Lundy's another name that comes up a lot. Yeah, I was hoping to see Doby Moore. Uh, there's some questions around him because he doesn't have the ten years 
well, hardly any of the Negro League candidates do, actually. But uh-huh. uh, his, his career was cut short when he was shot. He had some great years uh, playing in Hawaii in the military, though. So it's a very complicated Kofaxian short career case. Right. And another one that I I would have been interested to see was Heavy Johnson, who was just a a masher, just uh, video game numbers in the in the early early leagues. Uh huh. So so you're four for your ballot. If you if you if you had them, Uh, I know you said Fowler was one of them. Who were the other ones? I have Buck O'Neill. I have Bud Fowler, Home Run Johnson. And Bill Dallin. Okay. All right. Interesting. I'm I'm not sure yet where I would fall. I have a pretty good idea that Dallin would be one of them, and uh, possibly Fowler and Redding, and uh, really not sure who the fourth would be yet. Maybe O'Neill. But uh, I want to do my own research here and dig through these candidates and give it some more thought. But I, I appreciate your perspective here, Adam. It's is. Uh, uh, this is good stuff, and I think I'm going to go back and review what uh, what some of your other discussions with uh, folks like Scott Simkus, because I I, I, I want to know more about these guys and people who've who've done the work to put in a lot more time studying these ball players than I have here. It's easy to sound fluent about these guys after you've done the work, but until you do, it's you're you're kind of skating on thin ice. Right. Yeah, I will say that uh, I Vic Harris, Tubby Scales, Cannonball Dick Redding. I may not have put them on my list, but they are definitely Hall of Famers to me. Yeah, I think that there's you know I I, I think from what I've read, it seems like there's anywhere from one to two dozen Negro leagues and pre Negro leagues black baseball candidates who are probably worthy of enshrinement. It's going to take probably the rest of our lifetimes to see even you know the majority of those guys put in if, if, if there are that many. It's just going to be, you know, I think that there should be a special, you know, a, a, a separate era committee devoted to these guys that's, that's voting at least once every five years and maybe more often than that because we've got such a, a wealth of new research and, and uh, I think, you know, momentum to see these guys recognized. You know, there's only, I think, what, three surviving Negro Leagues players and one of them is Willie Mays, who's 90. You know, this is, this is not going to be we're not going to have much longer to, to, you know, before we've got, you know, any firsthand eyewitnesses to this. So I, I hope that we can recognize these players in, the, in, you know, before it's too late. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I wish that there was a separate committee with, with 10 candidates every five years. That would have really helped work through the backlog here. But like you said, it's just going to take forever with the current situation. I do think that this is going to force their hand. There's too many candidates that are not going to get in, and we can't just go 10 years before considering them. Again, we just opened the book again. Yeah, I agree. Well, it's a lot to chew on. Uh, Adam, thank you so much for chiming in here and, uh, and and giving us your perspective. And I'm looking forward to staying in touch with you through the Hall of Fame season here. I know that we've got some uh, uh, some Jaws-related stuff uh, uh, on your plate here at Baseball Reference that I'll be talking about separately uh, in, my, in my candidate profiles uh, related to these starting and relief pitchers. And uh, we'll be having all kinds of Hall of Fame debates uh, on Twitter and elsewhere here. Yeah. So thanks again, Adam. Thank you so much, Jay. I love talking about this stuff. All right. Good stuff. All right. And that's it for today. Uh, for Fangraphs Audio, I'm Jay Jaffe. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Big thanks to Alex Spear, C. Trent Rosecrans, and Adam Dorowski for joining us. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider sharing it with a friend. And check out the Fangraphs.com newsletter the best way to stay on top of all the cool things we have going on. We hope you have a wonderful and safe Thanksgiving. We'll talk to you next week.